Not up to you. Quite an entrance there. Eh? <laughs> Is uh, all the microphones off? All good. Okay, cool. So Candice and I were chatting recently, trying to plan our leave for next year, where do we want to save up leave and go away and go on holiday, etc. And then we were thinking back on the leave we've taken this year. And uh, we went away for five days in February, just the two of us, because we both hit a certain age milestone. We thought we'd go away, just the two of us. We get back from the holiday, and two days later, my dad has a massive heart attack. Many of you will know that he survived that miraculously. We recently went away hiking for five days, just the two of us, and two days after we got back, Candice's dad landed up at ICU. He'd fallen, he's broken his hip, so we're not planning any holidays next year. <laughs> but thank you for those who have prayed for, um, for Candice's dad. He's doing much better. Um, we're hoping he'll come out of ICU in the next couple of days, and uh, we're looking forward to his recovery. Just some other family news, friends of, of Hope City Church. For those who know Ed and Heidi Strong, uh, they came earlier this year and did a marriage seminar. They've been part of this journey of the church for um, all six and a half years, actually. Heidi's mom died very suddenly on Friday. So if you know her, please send her a message. Please keep them in your prayers. Um, and then Mark and Justine Wimble who, again, they come up two or three times a year to minister and preach in the church. Uh, you'll know that Mark, is, he beat cancer a few years ago. It came back this year, three tumors in his brain. Uh, he's had treatment. One of the tumors has disappeared completely. The other two have shrunk significantly to the point that he's functioning normally. He actually preached two weeks ago for the first time, I think in about six months. And so thank you for those who've prayed for him. Uh, and it's great to see God at work there. So uh, just giving some feedback for the many of you who know those wonderful couples. Okay, turn to John chapter 1. We're carrying on with our series in the book of John. Uh, love John's gospel. We're going to read from verse 14 of chapter 1. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is thinking back to when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration where his glory was revealed. That's probably what he's thinking of. We've seen his glory. And then he says, full of grace and truth. John, this is a different John, John the baptizer, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What a beautiful statement, eh? The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is, God, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with, God, with the Father, has made him known. So that's the text we have this morning. Can you put up that first picture? The only picture. Anyone seen Downton Abbey? Raise your hands if you watch this, enjoy this program. It's a period drama set in like the early 1900s. There were how many seasons? Five or six? Six seasons. There were a couple of movies made as well. Uh, I watched one recently and just reminded of all the different stories. But it's set in this fancy big English 
house, this Lani place, these, um, uh, the family of the Granthams, who part of them are here today. Sonia and Vaughn are also Granthams. Really good to have you guys. Thanks for joining us. Uh, the Lady Grantham. So if you can see like the old lady who is like second on the left, that's Lady Grantham. She's like, she's like the matriarch of this family, right? And we love some of her sayings. She was talking to one of her granddaughters, like, you know, grown-up granddaughter. And the granddaughter was complaining about how this thing wasn't working and how difficult life was. And she just looks at the daughter and the granddaughter and says, don't be so defeatist. It's so middle class, you know, like this <laughs> aristocratic family. But it's, so there's, the, there's the, the, these wealthy people, and you see their story and all the drama, which is very normal life, actually, even though they're very wealthy. And then you see the servants, who like they live at the bottom floor and they cook the food and they clean everything and they, they, they make the beds and they, you know, and, and their lives and their drama, these two kind of sets of stories that play out in this very fancy home amidst the backdrop of World War I happening and all kinds of things. And uh, one of the episodes you see, they get a telephone, like this brand new invention that completely changes the way that they live and move and, and, and communicate. And then at some point, I don't know what season it is, they get electric lights and electricity. They don't have to have candles anymore. And all of a sudden, like, life changes because they can cook with electricity and they can have a fridge that keeps things cold. Like, it's a complete change, you know? And uh, why am I saying all this? <laughs> what does this have to do with John? You think... <laughs> You think of electricity and how it's massively changed our society, right? I can remember for my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary, this is like in the 90s, all of my grandparents' kids, so my mom and her brothers, they saved up and bought my grandparents for their 50th, their big wedding anniversary, they bought them a microwave oven. Like in the 90s, this was a big deal. My grand, who did all the cooking, she was nervous about these waves that would come out of this machine and, you know. But it, it transformed how she cooked. She could heat things up a whole lot quicker. And the verses we're looking at today are the same kind of big life-changing deal where God became man. The Word became flesh. I'm trying to, you guys weren't around when the telephone was invented and stuff, but maybe think more recently. The first cell phone I got, I was at university. It was a Nokia. Like no colors, Polyphonic ringtones were quite a big deal at that stage. Uh, and then I migrated to a BlackBerry. Who remembers BlackBerry and BBM? Yeah? And then it's like I got saved. I got an apple. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. But, but, but you remember the, the big difference having a smartphone had compared to having a, we never called them dumb phones, but really they were, just telephone. But the word became flesh. There's this dividing line in history where God became man. And it's, it's because man, we could never make our way back to God. God knew that. We've tried everything to get right with God. But God realizes he has to become man in order to bring men back to God. So someone said the son of God became a man so that he could make men into the sons of God. That's the reason that God came. And it's a huge deal. It's a big Big deal. Michael Spencer, he said this. He says, without the incarnation, Christianity isn't even a very good story. And most sadly, it means nothing. Be nice to one another. 
is not a message that can give my life meaning, assure me of love beyond brokenness, and break open the dark doors of death with the key of hope. The incarnation, we're talking about God becoming man, is an essential part of our Christianity. If anyone was looking for a sign, it's now on the floor. (laughs) The incarnation, God becoming man, is one of the greatest mysteries of our faith. Because think about this, how can God, who is infinite, eternal, immortal, unchanging, omnipotent, all-powerful, who fills everything and everywhere, how can God limit himself to a human body? Have you ever tried to think about this? We, we preach about you know, Jesus being born as a baby at Christmas time. I'm sure we'll get there in the weeks to come. But have you ever considered that God, how do you put God in human? Like, like it's a great mystery. We, the Bible doesn't explain how it happens. We're left wondering with the sense of, what the heck? How did that happen? But the Bible doesn't explain why. We shouldn't try and figure out why because we're going to get kind of lost. Jesus didn't stop being God. That's really important for our faith. He didn't stop being God and then became man. He was fully God and fully man. Now, I don't get that. It's what the Bible says. We have to kind of believe it by faith because it's what the Bible says. He wasn't half man and half God, right? He wasn't like, like a mixture. He didn't like blend. You know when you make a cake and then you add the, the cocoa powder, suddenly it gets browner and browner until it's nice and brown. Like he wasn't a blend. He wasn't a mixture. He wasn't some weird chimera. His divinity wasn't diluted, and his humanity wasn't upgraded, that he was like Superman. He could fly and whatever, right? He wasn't half God, half man. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. I don't know how that works. I'm just saying that's what the Bible says and what our faith teaches. The Word became flesh. There's two ways you can look at the word become, all right? I'm trying to think of a good example here. Who can I use as an example? Terry, could you, could you be an example? Come and stand here. This is Terry, my friend. Known each other for probably about 10 years now, 10 and a half years. Terry, if you didn't know, he studied law. This is a lawyer. This, you don't argue with this guy. You're going to lose every time, no matter what your angle is, right? He was a lawyer. And then, I don't know for how long, and then he was an elder in a church, and he was a full-time elder. He stopped being a lawyer, stopped practicing law, and he then worked for a church. And now he's not, he is still an elder, He's not working for the church. He's now the head of our whole school. He's the executive head. So Terry was a lawyer, and he became an elder, right? He stopped being a lawyer. He stopped the one to do the other, right? Then he stopped working at the church, and he's now working for a big school. There's one sense of becoming where you leave the one thing, and you become the next thing. Make sense? Now, Terry is also a husband of one wife, Lainey. And then at some point along the journey of being a husband, he became a father. He didn't stop being a husband. He added to his husbanding role, fathering roles. You see the difference? On the one hand, he stopped being a lawyer to become something else. He's still a husband, but he becomes 
a father. He adds to it. Thanks, Bree. The same with Jesus. He didn't stop becoming God to become a man. He was fully God. He added humanity to his divinity. Does that make sense? The incarnation, this great mystery. But his, his God nature, his divinity, it was kind of hidden. It was veiled. It was, he was like in disguise, if you like. There are moments in his ministry where we see flashes of divinity coming out when he walks on water or the Mount of Transfiguration where the, he's glorified. There's this odd flash, right? But for the most part, it's veiled. It's hidden. You can't see he's fully God, but he is fully God. And just like we're going to preach in weeks to come about Jesus being born as a baby, he would have been born like any other human baby. He would have cried. You know, there's a carol that says, no crying he made. It's a lie. Just when you sing it, just laugh quietly in, inside. Don't laugh outside, laugh inside. <laughs> he would have needed burping. His nappies needed to be changed. He was a full Fully human, all the experiences of humanity he went through. You know when, when babies are cute and they're the newborns and they smile, the mom and dad thinks, oh, he's looking at me, he recognizes me, he's smiling. You know, that's not genuine love. It's wind and flatulence. So the baby's like, oh, I feel so much better now. <laughs> Jesus would have done the same thing as a baby. He would have got tired. As a toddler, he would have needed afternoon naps. He would have been hungry and thirsty. He would have learned to, needed to learn how to talk and how to walk. He was fully human. He would have had bad breath and so needed to learn how to clean his teeth and make his bed and all the other stuff that every other child had to go through. Jesus was fully human. J.R. Packer says, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. Like it just blows your mind. We, we're familiar with Jesus as God, as King, as Savior, as powerful. But then you think about, in a bit of detail, he, he was a baby. He grew up. He would have gone through puberty. His voice would have broken. He would have experienced peer pressure. All those things that you and I have gone through, he would have gone through. Think about that. It's just, it's staggering that this thing is true, the incarnation, God becoming man. He would have had the same temptations that we would have had. You know, anyone here take your dad's car out when your dad didn't know about it? Please be honest. Okay, Terry. Oh, quite a few. Okay, all right. Jesus would have had the same temptation to take the family donkey out and do donuts with it. Like, <laughs> just saying. I've got a science background. I studied science at, at university. So I was thinking this week, okay, so Jesus, the son of God, Mary was a virgin. Uh, so, so what does the DNA of Jesus look like? Well, obviously half came from his mom, Mary, but where did the other 50% of his DNA come from? We know it wasn't Joseph, but Jesus is a guy, therefore there must have been a Y chromosome involved somewhere, right? So this is my, this is my thinking. And then I realized, Glennon, you're wasting your time. Trying to figure out, is it God's DNA? Is it human DNA that's been like sanctified or something weird? Like, how did Jesus get all the rest of his chromosomes? This is how I think when I preach a sermon, prep for a sermon. 
But I don't think we should be lifting the lid of those kinds of things that the Bible doesn't speak into. Do you know why? We can end up going down a rabbit hole that lead us to all kinds of conspiracy theories and weird ideas that aren't helpful and that you can't even validate looking at the Bible. Just go and Google, well don't, but just if you did go and Google whose DNA did Jesus have, you will see the weirdest load of non-Bible stuff, all interesting ideas, all opinions and speculation, but actually we don't know. <laughs> we'll never know. The Bible, we shouldn't be prying the lid of stuff that will get us into trouble. We've got to believe it by faith. But this incarnation, it helps us think correctly about our humanity, helps us think better about ourselves in a few different ways. You see, God became man, not because being a person was such an amazing, fantastic, wow, I wonder what it's like to be a person, God said one day. Oh, let me become man. It's God came to man to redeem him. Human, humankind is sinful. We're imperfect. We, we rebel. We're depraved. He came to rescue us, not because we were so good, but because we needed rescuing. You don't come and rescue something that doesn't need rescuing. You don't come and redeem something that's already worthy. Mankind needed rescuing. That's why he had to come. But on the same hand, the eternal Son of God took on a human body for 30-odd years, and he was okay with that. He was okay with needing to be burped <laughs> and all the other stuff that comes with humanity. And then his body was glorified. He took it to heaven. He didn't think, ah, oh, this human body, dust to dust, it can just stay here. The spirit's going to heaven. No, no, he, his body ascended. It means something for our bodies, doesn't it? He was not ashamed to take on human flesh. You know, the Greek philosophers, they made a very sharp distinction between the body and earthly stuff and earthly activities and the spirit and spiritual things and the afterlife. And they thought that the body and all the earthly stuff was kind of inferior. You, just, you had to have a body. You had to eat food. You had to sleep and do all this stuff. But, but the really important stuff is being spiritual and praying and thinking about eternal life. And one day my spirit can be free of this body. You see it playing out in the book of Acts. Paul goes to the city of Athens and he starts debating with these philosophers, and they, they seem interested about Christianity and about how Jesus could become a man, how he died. But the moment Paul got to talking about the resurrection, this body coming back, they turned off completely. And we still, many of us, have this kind of Greek, Western philosophical throwback where we think things of the earth are, oh, we just have to do them. But the really spiritual stuff, that's important Got to pray, got to read the Bible, got to think heavenly thoughts, etc. But actually, Jesus gave validity to the human body and life on earth and going through struggles and working a job. He was a carpenter for many years. Many of us have thought, as have I, I'm glad one day my spirit will go to heaven. <laughs> I won't be confined by this body, but actually that's not true. We're going to get, if we die before Jesus comes back, that is true. Our body is buried or cremated or whatever, and our spirit is with Christ. But there's going to be a time 
when there'll be a new earth, God's going to remake planet earth, and we're going to get our bodies back. Hopefully, mine will be in a bit better shape than I left it. I think God's good luck there. We're not going to have the limitations of the human body, but we're going to have a physical body. Many of us think that my um, secular activities, having to work a job and look after the kids and raise them and mow the lawn and fix the lawnmower, whatever it might be, all of those things are inferior, but the spiritual stuff, that's the important. That's not true. Jesus came in flesh. Humanity and our life on earth is validated. It doesn't matter what we do. It does matter who you do it for. See, if you do mowing the lawn and raising the kids and working a job for yourself, if that's your God, then I don't think it's as valid as doing all things to the glory of God. When He's the center, when He's our source, then life, everything is spiritual, everything is sacred if He's our King and Lord. Amen? That's the first point about the incarnation. Second big idea we see here in this text is that there's a new epoch, a new era, if you like, in the history of salvation. John the disciple writes that the law was given through Moses. That's the one era, the law. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And you see that phrase three times here, grace and truth came through Jesus. We've all received grace upon grace. He was full of grace and truth. And so, The law came through Moses. It was given. God gave the law through Moses. Moses kind of imposed it on the people. And in a sense, that was God's grace. He taught them how to live and worship him. This is kindness of God to give them something of how to worship him. But then it says, God's grace came. There's a new era, and it came in the form of a person. It wasn't a bunch of rules on a tablet. The grace of God in human form is Jesus Christ. Grace and truth demonstrated in Jesus. There's a whole new era. The old is gone, great law. Moses is gone. And we try and keep a whole lot of rules like a religion. We're going back to the law. John says there's a new era, grace and truth. And it says we've received grace upon grace. That's um, another way to translate that is grace in place of grace already given. In other words, uh, if you think of the waves of an ocean, when a wave crashes and washes up halfway up the shore, and then it goes back, it's replaced by another wave. Think of God's grace like giving the law to people. That wave is coming back, it's receding. But then God gives more grace through Jesus Christ. And so God's grace is never limited. It's never not present. It knows no interruption. Because as the law is receding, there's new grace coming. God's grace never runs out. Moses brought the law, these commandments from God, and they were good. The Bible says, the New Testament says they were good. They were holy. They were were just, but they could not justify the law keeper. They were holy, but they couldn't make the law keeper Become holy. They could wound and injure, but they could not bind up. They had no power to heal or to set free. The law pronounced a curse on imperfect obedience, but it could not save. That's why they needed more grace and God to become man. 
Paul describes the law like a schoolmaster sent to guide us towards Christ. So you look at the Old Testament, you look at the law and all the ceremonial things, and you see great symbolism and great meaning and great depth, beautiful pictures that actually point to Jesus, the Lamb who one day would be slain for the sins of the world. And so when we do look at the law, we do get a measure of revelation, a measure of light from Moses and the law. But it's like dim starlight compared to the light of Christ's grace, like the blazing noonday sun. And so Christ is superior to Moses. Grace is superior to the law because he brings the truth about our salvation. Until Jesus came, man didn't know how to be saved. They had some laws of realizing they could never keep them. But Jesus dying for us, him being the sacrifice, we only knew that 2,000 years ago when Christ came into the world. And so the John writes, he's full of grace and truth. And that's a good thing because we need grace because we're all imperfect. Grace for us sad sinners who keep messing up and misstepping. Grace for us whose motives are wrong. And if you've realized sometimes that your motives are not pure, <laughs> I have often, we need grace. Grace for our bad attitudes. Grace for when we mess up, for when our words aren't kind. Grace for our hidden agendas, for our selfish motives. Grace for the worst crime you can think about. God is a God of grace. So I want to say to you today, whatever you've done, whether it's this morning or yesterday or 10 years ago, no matter how terrible a crime it is, God can forgive you because He is a God full of grace. Now, if you've stolen a car and you confess, God can forgive you. You might have to go to jail for it. There's still consequences in civil society, right? But God can forgive you eternally, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've messed up. God is a God of grace. It's without limit, it's without end, it's free in Jesus Christ. But he's also a God who's full of truth. And he doesn't lower his standards because suddenly grace is on the scene, right? God has a way we should live, a pattern we should live in this kingdom. We spoke about it a few weeks ago. There's a pattern for kingdom living, which is different to the ways of this world. And God doesn't lower the bar, oh, there's grace, you can do what you want. So we can't say, well, I can live however I want because God's going to forgive me. That is true, He's going to forgive you, but you're going to miss out on the things He has for you because you're not living according to His patterns in the kingdom. There's no greasy grace as some have called it, just do what you want because God forgives. No, no, His standards aren't lower, He's still full of truth of how we should live. A last point I want to mention this morning from this passage is that we see that God gets personal. God gets personal. He's not a force, some energy field, the dark side of the force, or the what? The light side of the force. That's not Him. He gets personal with us. John writes these words. He says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. 
Jesus came to make the Father known, because no one's ever seen God, what John says. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to God, and he's praying for his disciples. He says, Lord, I've, can I get this right? I've revealed you to them, and I will continue to make you known. That was Jesus, one of his missions, to make his Father known. Turn with me to John chapter 14. This is what it says from verse 6. Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let me pause there. Some people think the goal of life is to escape hell and go to heaven. That's not what Jesus taught. The way to the Father is through me. It's about relationship. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. How's that? From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. This is what Philip says. Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. It's a great line, hey? Show us the father. Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip? He didn't say, don't you know my father? Don't you know me? God speaking. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus came, yes, for salvation, but part of that was to reveal God, that he can be known by us. He's personal. He has a personality. You can make him happy and sad. You know that? You can. He has a personality. He can be known. Well, then how does Jesus make God known to us. Well, we look at Jesus' life and his teachings in the Gospels, and he reveals the Father to us. We see God as he interacts with people. We see Jesus having compassion wherever they are, hurt people, outcasts. He goes to, or 10 lepers come to him. Remember, leper couldn't go to anyone in society because they were unclean. You couldn't be near a leper. You, couldn't, you weren't allowed to touch them. They came to Jesus, and he has compassion on them. He touches them. He heals them. These outcasts, he spends time with them. He shows them love and care. That's God the Father showing us. If you're an outcast, if you hurt or unclean in some way, God shows compassion to you. He grieves with a family whose son has died. Shows the heart of God. He took on the Pharisees who were often filled with pride and hypocrisy. He told many parables depicting what God is like. Think of the workers in the vineyard where he hires workers all throughout the day and he promises to pay them. And then he pays the guys who worked the whole day long a full day's wage. And they were like, woohoo, awesome. And then he, he pays them as they arrive in the day and he pays the guys who worked for one hour. And they got a full day's wage. It doesn't show that God's unfair because he pays everyone the same, right? It shows he's generous. God is a generous God. We look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan was a foreigner, a stranger, an enemy of the Jews. But he goes out of his way to help this injured Jewish man who his own countrymen wouldn't help. Picks him up on his donkey, bandages his wounds, takes him to an inn, pays for recovery. That's God going out of his way to bring wholeness and healing to us. That's the heart of God. 
the parable of the talents, shows us that God gives each of us abilities and skills and gifts and that he trusts them to us. One day he'll come back and check out what we've done. I want to make him proud, but, he, but he's a trusting God. He gives us responsibility and says, go and make something of this life and the gifts I've given you. All throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus revealing God to his disciples. When you read the Bible, friends, when you read the Gospels this week, keep your eyes and heart open to Jesus revealing God the Father to you. That's why he came. So we can know God personally. We can have a close relationship with him. We can be intimate. We can have this fellowship where we know God. Jesus taught his disciples and us how to pray. How did he do it? Our Father who's in heaven. He didn't gather them around and say, right, I'm going to teach you how to talk to your creator. Assume the position. Oh, magnificent one in heaven. He didn't do that. He didn't go, oh, glorious judge, please hear us. He didn't do that. He didn't say, when you pray, pray like this. Salutations, mighty one. No. If you're a bit agnostic, I grew up agnostic, which means you believe in something, but you've got no idea what you believe in. For the agnostics among us, he didn't go, to whom it may concern? <laughs> no. He says, Abba, Father, my dearest Father. This is how we are to pray to the King of the universe, my Father. We can know God as our Father. It was a game changer. The, the, the Pharisees wanted to stone him because the, he called God his Father. Because they only thought of God as mighty, powerful, holy, creator, judge when you messed up, but distant and far away in heaven. Only the priests in the temple could see him. And only the high priest could go into the, the special place once a year. And they had to tie a rope around his leg because if he did something wrong, he would die. No, this is, this is a new era. We get to know God as our Father. He's personal. And I want to say, just as I'm ending, is that God, our Father, He's always available. I've tried to think, like, okay, if I pray in the morning, and maybe half the world, you know, the times, maybe like there's three billion people trying to talk to God all at the same time. How does He process all those prayers, like, coming up? Like, I don't know. Obviously, he's infinite. That so doesn't bother him at all. He's, not, he's the ultimate multitasker, right? Because billions of people are praying. And he's involved in everyone's lives all the time. Jesus said, my father's always at work. So God's always doing something. Always. And yet he's never too busy. Doesn't that mess with the fuses in your head? Like God's, he's always available. He's, he's always at work, but he's never busy. He's never like, oh, Brandon praying, oh, no. But you prayed last week, but like, I've got other guys to work with today. Like, God's not like that. <laughs> and he's not like any of you. God, he's not like you. Doesn't get tired. I'm not going to point at people now. Doesn't get tired. Doesn't get grumpy. Doesn't get moody. Someone in there gets moody. He doesn't, like when you're talking with him, his eyes don't glaze over because he's thinking about playing golf. 
Like God is not like human. He's not like us. He's our heavenly father. We can pray to him. He's available all the time. He doesn't get bored of listening to your same story time after time. He doesn't. He enjoys spending time with you and I. The Bible says he delights in us. And he doesn't just tolerate us. You know, you've got that irritating friend that you only like to see once a month because too much and they just like, they irritate you. Now, I've got no friends like that, but maybe some of you have friends like that. <laughs> God's not like that with us. He doesn't get irritated. <laughs> He's loving. He's our Father. Can we stand? I want to pray for us. Can the band come up? I want us to respond in a certain way this morning. Can we close our eyes?